Well, we come now to consider, with God's help, those particular verses from John 16, which speak of the work of the Comforter, whom the Saviour is to send into the world. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. These words of the Saviour were spoken to his disciples as they were sorrowing and greatly distressed at their Lord's talk of leaving them, of going away. The prospect of losing him and the comfort of his presence while taking on the burden of bearing witness to him in a hostile world, fill them with dismay. How could the world be won to Christ by such weak, fearful, frail men? The Saviour proceeds to assure them that they will not be left alone. The work that he has begun, he will continue by them, but not in their own strength. After his departure from them, he will send the comforter to them. And with his coming, they would enjoy their Lord's continuing presence, never to be interrupted, a presence not dependent on Jesus' physical proximity. As the spirit of truth, he would lead them into all truth. He would render them infallible in communicating his revelations to the church. And further, the spirit would be the agent to effect the transformation of men's hearts and lives, to subdue them to Christ, to effectually persuade and enable them to embrace him as he is offered to them in the gospel. Now we are told that the special work of the comforter is to reprove the world. Now the word translated reprove can also be rendered as convince or convict. The comforter will convince the world. He will convict the world. Well, Christ promises that when the Spirit is come, he would reprove 
or convince or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. There can be no comfort of pardon unless there is first conviction of sin. And there can be no clothing of righteousness apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. And there can be no security of hope without the assurance that the powers of darkness have been defeated. Now, no human persuasion could convince of these things. Only a divine power, which the disciples are assured would not fail to accompany them and their labours in the gospel. Well, let us proceed to think about these three things that the Spirit or the Comforter is to reprove the world of. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We begin with those words of sin because they believe not on me. This is the first of these works of divine power, the conviction of sin. But you'll notice that the sin that the Saviour identifies here is not sin in general. It is a very specific sin. It is the sin of unbelief in him because they believe not in me. What audacity. What blasphemy it would be for a mere man to utter such words. But Christ could say them because he was no mere man. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate. And we are to have that faith in him which is due to God alone because he is God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, we read, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Or in John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The Jews were all for doing good works to earn righteousness. Well, this is the work of God, that ye should believe on him whom God hath sent. The unbelief that Christ puts his finger on here is the great obstacle to be overcome in the conversion of sinners. It is the root cause of other sins, and it is especially heinous 
because of the several aggravations that accompany it and the eternal consequences to those who persist in it. One commentary says, as all sin has its root in unbelief, so the most aggravated form of unbelief is the rejection of Christ. The Jews, by and large, did not acknowledge or receive Christ as the Messiah long promised to them in the prophets. They were blinded by their conceit of a Messiah who would restore to their nation the glories that it enjoyed in the days of David and Solomon. That's what they were looking for, a temporal Messiah. Christ's humble circumstances were a stumbling block to their reception of him. He did not fit with their notion of what a Messiah should be. He suffered in much apparent weakness. He was subjected to the disgraceful death of the cross, and that made him the object of their scorn. Being blinded by their own prejudices, they judged of him by outward appearances. And because he threatened their privileged status, they responded by turning the people's hearts against him. And sadly, their posterity continue in this unbelief even to this day. There is a stiff-necked obstinacy that resists the plain testimony of the Old Testament and even the facts of history. Now, the Jews had no excuse for their unbelief. As Christ gave them every evidence of his credentials, the Old Testament set him forth through the promises, types, and sacrifices with which they were favoured above all other nations. And if they had bothered to inquire, they would have found that he was of the line of David. He was born of a virgin, as Isaiah promised. This was the seed of the woman that was to bruise the serpent's head. He appeared at precisely at the time that Daniel prophesied in chapter 9, verse 24. John the Baptist pointed him out to them as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The miracles he wrought testified to his divine power and authority. His doctrine called the people back to the spirituality of the law. He drove them from trusting to the law 
to save them. He went about doing good indiscriminately like his father in heaven. And above all this, he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he enjoyed the favour of his father in heaven. But the conviction or the reproof that the comforter brings is not confined to the Jews, of course. For the verse we've read tells us he was to reprove the world of this sin. That includes you and me. Now, we're not speaking here merely of an unbelief, or sorry, a belief in the historical Jesus. Many a person will agree that there was a man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Indeed, the devils believe and they tremble. But the faith which is here commended to us is to believe in Christ as the creator and sustainer of this world, as the redeemer who is set before us in the scriptures as God's provision for the pardon of sin. It is to believe in him as the only begotten son of the father, chosen and ordained by God to be the mediator between God and men, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and saviour of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. That's what belief in Christ entails. Do you believe in such a Christ? Well, there are no shortages of excuses made for unbelief. Many people say, I, I genuinely, I conscientiously find it difficult to believe in Christ. But I put it to you that much of this conscientious unbelief stems from an unwillingness to part from sins, those sins which unbelief soothes the conscience. The scriptures tell us that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Some people will protest and say, but I need to have a, a, a more comprehensive understanding of who God is if I'm to believe in him. But who can ever find out God? No, we are to adopt the attitude of Augustine of old who said, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe 
that thou mayest understand. Those same prophecies of the Old Testament that ought to have convinced the Jews also bear witness to us Gentiles, as do the miracles recorded for us in the Scriptures. We do not need contemporary miracles or prophecies to augment what we already have in the Bible. The record of such things in Scripture is more than sufficient to convince us. Do you remember how in the parable Abraham rebuked the rich man who in hell begged Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them not to to warn them that they might not come to this place of torment in which he was. And Abraham's response to them is the same as should be the response to any who say we need more. He said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they hear not the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. And one did, one did indeed rise from the dead, and they tried to deny it. And many today still try to dismiss his resurrection as a hoax or as a delusion, as a... Um, a vain, a vain imagination, perhaps a, an hallucination. And the lie that was promulgated by the priests and the scribes at the time that Christ rose is still very much in vogue. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. This is the desperation of men who will not believe despite the evidence. And to this evidence, we might add the evidence of the life and teaching of Christ's apostles. Here was this group of timid, largely uneducated men, they were fishermen, who became as bold as lions and were willing to lay down their lives for the truth they preached. Then there is the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself. Whenever the word is read or preached, the word that he inspired, and this word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, pricks the conscience and reveals to men their evil subterfuges. Well, this unbelief is a particularly grave sin and it is greatly offensive to God. You see, it greatly dishonours God because it makes a liar of him, him who is light in whom there is no darkness, who is truth itself is put in the same category as the father of lies. 
by our unbelief. What could be more offensive to him? This is the God who proclaimed from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This sin of unbelief deprecates the greatest demonstration of mercy that this world has ever seen. God sent his son into the world to redeem sinners. And remember, God was under no obligation to do so. What provision did the holy God make for the fallen angels? None. Why should he make a provision for fallen men? Only because of the richness of his mercy and grace and love. And to deprecate that by unbelief, how offensive to God. Let us now move on to consider the next aspect of the comforter's reproof. To reprove the world of righteousness. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. That seems a bit mysterious, doesn't it? How are we to understand this? as convincing of righteousness. Well, I want to put it to you that just as the Spirit convinces of sin, he also convinces or convicts us of the way whereby sin can be covered. This speaks to us of the grace of justification. And let me show you how. When the priests and scribes had Christ crucified, they portrayed him as an evildoer, a false teacher, a blasphemer. He was hung on the cross as an example to people of what would happen to someone who was unrighteous in their eyes. The depths of unrighteousness is what they accused him of. He went about eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. No Messiah would do such a thing. No son of God would associate with them. If he was a prophet, why didn't he recognize the character of those with whom he's associating? And then... The audacity of it. He presumed to forgive men their sins. To say that I forgive you your sins. Sin is against God. How can he do such? He's making himself equal with God. In John 5 verse 18 we read, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father and made himself equal with God. What could be a more unrighteous 
person than such a man as that in their eyes. But now you see that Christ links the Spirit's reproving of righteousness to his going to the Father. And I think what he is saying to us here is that whilst men might uh, accuse him of great wickedness and unrighteousness, the Father accepts him as righteous and demonstrated that, demonstrates that he does by raising him from the dead and that he ascended up to heaven there to sit at the right hand of the Father. So all those slanders and evil aspersions that the scribes and the Pharisees laid upon Christ and sought to poison the minds of the people against him with God vindicates him as a righteous man by taking him to himself of righteousness because of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Apostle Peter reminds Jesus' persecutors of this in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of them. Further, we are to understand that the righteousness which is vindicated by Christ's resurrection and ascension is not his essential righteousness as he is the Son of God, that righteousness which he, which he always has, which was his from all eternity. That's not the righteousness that is being vindicated here. Rather, it is his righteousness as the surety of his people. That he took upon him our nature and he took upon him the obligation of the covenant of works to do, to render a perfect, unsullied obedience to what the law requires of you and me which we fail miserably to comply with. But he came and he undertook to fulfill the most rigorous demands of the law. And he could say, which of you convinceth me of sin? Not only did he perfect righteousness by his own obedience to that covenant, but he also endured the penalty that the law prescribes for covenant breakers. He bore in his body on the cross the penalty that each one of us deserves because of our sin. That is the righteousness which Christ earned, merited in his flesh. That is the righteousness 
that may be imputed to us if we humbly believe in him. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. And the righteousness of God, which the apostle is speaking of there, is that righteousness that Christ merited in our nature. Now, multitudes of our fellow men, conscious that they are exposed to the judgment of the holy God, vainly imagine that they can somehow earn their own righteousness by good works, by penances, by sacrifices, strict observance of the law, all these things that the Jews were addicted to. They even prided themselves upon it. It is the, the, the default setting of all unregenerate men and women. We naturally hope that our good works will outweigh our evil deeds. And so we seek to be justified by our own righteousness. Well, the reproach of the comforter exposes this refuge of lies for the sham that it is. And when he brings the full rigor of the law to bear upon the conscience. Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So when a sinner is convicted of his sins and brought to recognize that he is undone before a holy God, if thou should mark iniquity, Lord, who shall stand in thy sight? To realize that there is no remedy in himself or in any other mere man. He trembles as he realizes that he is totally devoid of any righteousness that can abide the searching scrutiny of omniscience. And so he is reproved of trusting in his own righteousness and comes to see that all his righteousnesses are as but filthy rags. But by Christ's rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, the sinner is assured that his merited righteousness, righteousness that Christ merited by his own obedience, is acceptable to God and he is willing for it to be imputed to all who believe in him without exception. And so we may become and be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That leads us then to think finally of the third of those things about which the comforter reproves us, of judgment, because the ruler of, or the prince of this world is judged. Now, what are we to understand by the prince of this world? Well, the scriptures give this title, prince or God of this world, to the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the devil is a ruler in the sense that he exercises his deceitful and corrupting influence in the hearts of all unregenerate people. When the seed of the woman bruised the serpent's head, he triumphed over him. He triumphed over the devil at the cross. In satisfying the strict demands of the law by his self-sacrifice, he took away from the devil his power to accuse the believer. When you're not a believer, the devil can accuse you of your corruptions, of your failure to come up to the standard of God's law, and you've got nothing to answer him with. But if you're a believer in Christ and he accuses you, you can say with Paul, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. The devil's darts fail to penetrate. Christ has bound this strong man and spoiled him of his goods. When you think of what we read in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Christ has judged the ruler of this world. He's triumphed over him. But further, when the elect sinner is brought to faith in Christ and is clothed with his righteousness, he is comforted to know that the power of sin that once ruled in his heart is overcome. It was overcome when the Saviour overcame the God of this world. And this speaks to us of the grace of sanctification. 
that those who are in Christ have enabling grace that they might die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And this Christ accomplished for them. Romans 6.11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And furthermore, we are assured that there is a just judge who rules the world from heaven. In the presence of evil and its insidious spread throughout the world, and especially in this post-Christian age that we are, in which our lot is cast, that can leave us feeling that there is no real justice. We see the godly, brazenly persecuted. We see Christian institutions losing their respected standing in society, the law increasingly patronising the wicked and penalising the righteous. However, we must not give way to discouragement when we are assured that the prince of this world is judged The Christian serves a victorious king who is invested with all power in heaven and earth to build his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all his elect. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against him, but rather like the walls of Jericho, they shall fall before his invincible armies. Psalm 2 expresses it for us. He that sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall scorn them all. Then shall he speak to them in wrath. In rage he vex them shall. Because I have set my king upon my holy hill. Zion. The ruler of this world has been judged. And ultimately, there is the judgment of the last day, which, however men might seek to deny or push to the background, is the solemn reality facing each and every one of us. But the Spirit convinces all men in their consciences of the reality of this day, even though they seek to suppress it. But he gives comfort to the saints that for them it will be a day of rejoicing. For them to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, let me bring these thoughts to a conclusion. In these verses that we have been studying, we have been considering what a wonderful progression there is in the Comforter's work. From conviction of sin to justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ 
and to sanctification as sin is overcome and the saints more and more grow in grace and holiness. If we sincerely and prayerfully examine our hearts and can say that we have been reproved by the comforter of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in the sense that outlined here, then we may rejoice in the blessed consolation that the comforter brings. And you can see why it's appropriate that he's called the comforter when we consider the implications of these things. But if not, if we cannot say that these words apply to us, let us give no rest to our souls until we be found in Christ. And we should not stay any longer in the fearful pit of unbelief and the miry clay of our sins. Cease to trust in those refuges of lies with which Satan seeks to keep you in unbelief. Don't trust in God's general mercy. Only in his mercy to those who are in Christ. I close with the wisdom of Solomon. Proverbs 22, verses, verse 3. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. If you are a prudent man, you will hide yourself from the evil of sin and of the judgment to come, and you'll hide yourself in that only place of refuge, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Solomon goes on to say, but the simple pass on and are punished. Who are the simple? Well, many of the simple are those who pride themselves on their understanding and their intelligence and their learning but they're simple because they reject the reproving work of the comforter. May that not be true of any of us here this morning. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou didst send the comforter, that the Saviour sent the comforter into the world to reprove of un the sin of unbelief, of un the sin of unbelief when they do not believe in him, of righteousness because he went to the Father and we see him no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Lord, may these reproofs of the Spirit, may this convincing, convicting work of the Spirit work in our hearts repentance from unbelief and from trusting in all those false refuges of lies in which the ungodly world look to. May our confidence be in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us 
And Lord, that we might go on in our growth in grace, mortifying the flesh with its lusts, because the Spirit convinces us that the ruler of this world has been judged. These things we ask in our Saviour's name. Amen.